There are times when we read the scripture that we are handicapped by our birth, where we were born, not only in location, but in time and chronological order. If we had been born around the time of the Jews being described in the story of Matthew chapter 1, we would have been blown away by Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now, we haven't hit the magic phrase yet, but everybody who was a Jew hearing that story for the first time back in those days would have known exactly what prophet was being named and what the prophecy was all about. And that's what we want to talk about on this first Sunday in December as we continue Advent season. God with us. We hear the phrase, you'll call him Emmanuel, for he will be God with us. And, and we say, I got it. We're very intellectual folk. Uh, we're, we're Westerners, Western uh, European and Western culture. So we've stripped it of all the emotion and the joy, and we just handle it logically. Say, yes, God with us. God came down and he was with us. Got it. Move on, please. But there's so much more. There's so much more to this. But to really get it, we got to go back about 850 years. Not from here, but from then. To the story of Elisha. And then move forward 100 years to the story of Isaiah. So we're going to do that real quick. Then we're going to take a trip to the northern climes of Europe. Then we're going to come back and talk about us. So I hope that you brought your lunch. No, it won't be that long. But uh, put your tray tables in their upright and locked positions. We've got a long way to go. Elisha lived 850 years before the birth of Jesus. In many ways, it was dark ages for the Jews. During his 50 years of ministry... He really never had a clear path. There were always those there to oppose him. But his greatest enemy was the greatest enemy of the Jews at that time, of Israel at that time. And that was the king of the Arameans. Those of you who are thinking, I've never heard of the Arameans, or Arameans as they're sometimes called, uh, should take a lesson from that. All of those great powerful enemies of God eventually dissolve into being forgotten. But God does not. You remember Israel. You don't remember Aramea. There's a lesson there. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The king of the Arameans was a powerful man. And he had lots of soldiers that were very powerful men. And he had decided what he wanted to do was to kill the king of Israel. Because Israel was in his way. He wanted hegemony. He wanted control over a geographical area. And Israel was a problem. So, being a very successful warlord, he set several traps for the king of Israel. But every single time, when the trap was sprang, sprung, sprison, whatever, when they, when they attacked, how's that? Uh, they, he, he wasn't there. The king was, was not there. 
and it frustrated him no end. So he called his wizards and his priests together, and he said, how does he know? How does he know every time that I'm about to get him? And he's, he's just not there. And they said, he has a prophet. There's a prophet named Elisha. And every time we set a trap, Elisha hears from his God, and then he goes and tells the king of Israel. Well, the king of Aramea saw a solution there. Let's kill Elisha. Now, you and I may be looking at that thinking, well, wait a minute. If God's telling Elisha when the king of Aramea is going to kill Israel, the king of Israel, won't he tell him when he's coming for him? The king of Aramea had not sorted that out. So, he said, let's get him. So, Elisha's minding his own business, sleeping the night away. He's got a servant man there that uh, was there voluntarily. It's not a slave guy. It was a, like a job, a butler type job. He's in the house, but that's it. And the king of Aramea and his best soldiers and chariots all sneak up and they surround him. I mean, a vast number for the, the task uh, are all around him. Well, the servant gets up in the morning. I don't know if he's whistling a happy tune or whatever he was. But he came, looked out the window, and uh uh-oh, there's a big army here, and they don't look friendly. So he runs to his his master, uh, Elisha, and says, we are surrounded, we're in big trouble. And Elisha goes, not so much. And then Elisha prays, and it's an interesting prayer. He says, Lord, please open my servant's eyes. So he'll see who's really there. So the servant goes out, looks out the window. And the Arameans are still there. And they've still surrounded the house. But there's another army surrounding the Arameans. And Elisha says, they who are with us are greater than they who are against us. They who are with us. The concept of with us is what I want you to take from that. By the way, George Lucas famously took this story and used it for one of his scenes in the first Star Wars movie. I had a couple of people last week who were very upset that I kind of dissed Star Wars uh, and, and dissed Disney. I really didn't. Observation is not criticism. Anyway, um, let's go with that, shall we? Uh, but here's one where George Lucas, uh, and they actually borrowed a scene from Elisha because Uh, Elisha prays to God and then walks out to the king of the Arameans and he's saying, who are you looking for? And they go, Elisha. And he goes, oh, I'll take you to him. And God clouded the minds of the Arameans to where they all marched right into Israel, right into the middle of the armed camp of Israel, thinking that they were going somewhere else. It's kind of like, these are not the droids you're looking for. And put them all the way and then they were all captured and that's why you haven't heard of the king of the Arameans. That story done. We need to talk about another story. Because a hundred years later, things were not looking good. The people had forgotten that God was with them. And they had left God. So Isaiah writes his book. It is an amazing book. If you've never read Isaiah, you have lost out. You might think, well, it's old stuff. I really won't get it. No, this isn't Chronicles. Chronicles, especially Second Chronicles, and the first part of First Chronicles can get confusing. I, I get that. Isaiah acts like it's writing about today. No matter when you read it, 
I think it's true if you read it in the year 800, and it's absolutely true today. It's like Isaiah's reading the headlines. But Isaiah does not have good news for the people. We're going to read about 15 verses scattered in four different chapters here, one right after the other, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 5. Let's go ahead. Just get the weight of all of this. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey, its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. By the way, notice that. It's not a matter of God with us. It's a matter here of they wouldn't stay with God. They walked from him. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. How terrifying would that be to hear that? Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. How many times, parents, do we say, just stop it? You, Lord, have abandoned your people the descendants of, ja of Jacob. They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. They embrace pagan customs. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. Just, by the way, read People magazine. Read any of those. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come. Swiftly, speedily, not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. By the way, that, uh, when a soldier is, has a tight belt, he's on duty. If he loosens it, he's not on duty. They're saying they're all on duty. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. And that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. If only one looks at the land, there's only darkness, distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. Look at that again. If you only look at the land, there's only darkness and distress. Why? Because God is rising up all these nations to come and attack Israel because he says, I'm done with you. Look what you've done. I'm done with you. Now, in Isaiah, he keeps saying, I'm going to save a part of you. And from that part will come the Messiah. But the rest of you, you'll be gone. It's no wonder then that Isaiah cries out next, woe is me, for I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We often say, if God is for us, who can be against us? But you know, it's just as valid to say, 
If God is against you, who could even rescue you? Who could be for you? In response to Isaiah's cry of hopelessness, God reaches down and touches him and cleanses him so that Isaiah can be a spokesman for God in the middle of this difficult time. Isaiah is told, God will forgive those who truly repent. A remnant will be saved. The seed of Israel will be planted. A branch will grow, and that branch will be the Christ. But then comes more bad news. In chapter 7, two armies come up against Jerusalem, and they nearly succeed in taking it. And the Israelites know they barely escape doom. And then they look out and they get news. A third army is coming. And with three armies, they know Jerusalem will fall. And so God reminds Isaiah that while men like to talk, they need to remember God is talking too. Take a look at this. Aram, Ephraim, Remalia's son has plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let's tear it apart, divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Wow. Have you ever thought of that? When the talking heads are going on the 24-7 news networks, and they're going, oh, this, oh, that, oh, this is happening, oh, then this. They seem to forget God hasn't stopped being in charge. And he's still talking. And that's something we need to keep in mind. Oh, my goodness. Chapter 8, they're told the nations are going to come against you like a flood, but I'm going to keep part of you above the water. When the flood comes in, the wings of Emmanuel, they were told, will protect them. Emmanuel, a name meaning God with us. God with us means that all is not lost. God with us means salvation will appear when all things look, and it's also important to remember this from the last verse, dark and dismal. As Zechariah says, there will be light in the evening when you expect it to go dark. It is Advent. Christmas time is coming. It's a time for gifts. It's a time for family and joy. And those of you that don't like the season are wrong because it's wonderful. The lights are wonderful. And those of you that, that complain, oh, they're listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving and they've got the lights out and they, they put an elf on the shelf and all that sort of thing. You just don't like the baby Jesus, do you? Uh, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> something desperately wrong with you. But we love you anyway and you're going to go to heaven, but you're going to be talked to for a bit when you get there. It is, it's Advent. It's a time for family and gifts and joy. But it was not always that way. We need to remember what it was and what the lights and the trees and the candles and the elves and all of that are actually, why we even have them this time of year. Because certainly Jesus didn't have lit trees and presents under it. And the presents he did get from the wise men, he was about two years old by the time they showed up because men don't ask directions. And so when they show up, and, and obviously men did not ask for advice on how to pick gifts, frankincense, 
myrrh. Because a kid can never have too much myrrh. <laughs> Yet when they, sh- we don't ha- he didn't have any of these, this paraphernalia of the garlands and such. So why do we have it? That's important for us to remember why we have it. Because most of us here are from Western cultures. We were from Northern Europe where we believed in hell. But hell to us was not a place of fire. The Nordic, the Celtic, the Gaelic, the Frankish people, to them hell was a place of eternal dark, eternal cold, eternal snow, and the howling wind. That was hell to them. They prayed for salvation from that. When the days got shorter, the wind got more fierce. I want you to place yourself now, if you could. I'd almost like to kill the lights, but sometimes when we kill the lights, the shepherds go to sleep. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We don't. Uh, that's why they have the wives to poke them. Um, but this, these are some stories that really need to be taught, told in the dark room around the fire. Because it would get dark. And you don't know what dark is until you have been in the northern climes. In Scotland, Cami learned quickly that the wind starts howling in October and it doesn't stop till April. And it's a constant. And that in December, kids would go to school in the morning with flashlights. We call them torches, but uh, with, with their, their torches on and come home with them. Because the sun won't come up before 10, 10.30. And it goes down by 2. And many days you can't tell it did. Because it's too cloudy. You're in an area where you're between the North Sea, the Irish Sea, the North Atlantic, and the Arctic Circle. And that is a weather maker that you just cannot imagine until you are there. We wake up in the morning and we'll have six inches of snow, but none on the ground. It's packed on the side of the house from where the wind came. We call it horizontal snow. People always ask, do you get much snow in Scotland? I said, we see it, but it's going by. It's on its way to Norway. You know, we wave at it, but uh, that's... But I want you to think about the days of old when you were in one room. This is the day before chimneys had been figured out. So any heat you have comes from a very small turf or dung fire in the middle. Smoke and ash fills the entire room. It is dark. We call them black houses because they're black with soot on the inside. There's one hole in the middle of the roof. It's never closed. That's where we hope some of the smoke will escape. And you're in there. You're in there from late fall, early winter. Until at least the end of March, there's nothing else for you to do or be. You spend a lot of time sleeping, telling tales, sewing more of um, pelts together, but there's nothing much else to do except wait it out and hope you have enough food to live. But knowing most don't, and some will die. Every time it gets dark, you know some will die. After a while, people had certain superstitions and ceremonies to keep up their morale. They would use these to bring favor to the gods so that the gods would bring light back to the world. 
They'd bring warmth back to the world, a chance again in the darkness and dismal land in which they lived. Sympathetic magic was part of it. It's always been a part of it with ancient religions. So they'd bring evergreens in as a sign of life, as a way of saying, if we bring life in and act like there's life, maybe there'll be life. And so they'd bring it in, but also to deodorize the inside of that room. Because you see, that room was also connected to another low area, a byre, a B-Y-R-E, if you want to look it up later, where the animals were. And it didn't smell good, and it wasn't healthy, but that's all they could do to protect the animals and themselves. And so the evergreens would be brought in. Candles were very precious things. And don't think of a candle as one of those sticks of wax things that you get from uh, a smelly place in the mall. It always amazes me the chemical warfare that malls are allowed to, to do between the candles, the places, the, the uh, soap places, and Abercrombie and, and, and the like. You wonder why there aren't dead asthmatics laying on the floors. <laughs> but think of candles as little bowls of animal fat that you would heat up and put a string or a little stick in and light in that little flickering even that, what if you run out before spring? There are no stores. And to go to a neighbor to ask is dangerous, the trip. Plus, they'll probably say, no, they need what they have. But in the darkest time of the winter, they would look at the green boughs and remind themselves of what the world was like when it was warm. And they would light some candles on the longest, coldest, darkest night of the year. And they would bring in a log and wrap it with evergreens and set it on fire. Now, not in a fireplace. It's in the middle of where they live. And sparks would pop. But the idea is we've got to get the gods to pay attention to us or we will die. So the Yule log was lit. The candles were lit. They would sing traditional songs and teach each other the songs of their people during the dark as if challenging the darkness with their faith, people will exchange tokens of love as a symbol of, I think you're going to make it. Here is food for you. Now, here's the thing about Christmas food. I love Christmas food. It's great stuff. But when we give food, it's extra. It's, it's not like I'm giving you food, but I'll have to do without. They gave food as in, I want you to make it. And they would give their food. They would give a needle, a precious needle, a precious awl to make holes in things. They would, uh, uh, something precious. That was a way of saying, I love you. I want you to survive. The world was in darkness. It was in trouble. And it was waiting. But let's flash back to Israel. We know the story of Jesus' birth quite well, even though we get it all confused with the three kings that weren't and uh, when the wise men showed up and all that sort of thing. We get it confused, but we know the story. But you might not understand some of the story. Joseph was told not to divorce Mary. Do you understand what that meant? The story of Jesus' birth starts with God saying, don't follow the law, follow love because Joseph was according to scripture a sadiq a righteous man and a righteous man finding his intended 
had been unfaithful, sexually promiscuous in any way, was required by the law to bring her out in front of the community and shame her. And while the Romans said you couldn't stone her to death, that was God's law. And for those of us who in a very free and safe society say, I will follow God's law rather than man's law, yeah, it's easy here. It wasn't easy for Joseph. So instead of taking her out and shaming her, because although he was righteous, he was also so kind, he decided let's just be this quiet. Love trumped law. Even then. How is it that we keep missing this in Scripture? But God said, don't put her away. Joseph would have been in his rights to say, have you not read Deuteronomy? Do you not believe the Bible, God? God said, love her. This is something special. This came from me. Take a look at this passage. Matthew 1. All this took place. All of this we've talked about. Took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now we're going to say what he said. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. Which means God with us. In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the worst time, God with us. Do you see now what the Jews, their heads would have snapped up, their eyes would have snapped open, and they would have gasped and held their breath, and God, did you say God with us? This is him? It's been over 700 years since Isaiah wrote that. It's been over 850 years since Elisha lived. He's going to show up here. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament at least 47 times. The reason he did that was to show the Jews this is really him. It's really him. God was going to invade the world by sending a baby into the womb of a not quite married, very young teenage girl. And don't don't think of that. They were off in a barn somewhere. Mangers were at that time, just like in Northern Europe many years later, connected to houses. There would have been a door between the house and the manger. The heat of the animals was important, and to keep them alive was important. And so they were there, often an annex, the animal annex of the house, and God walked in amongst all of that and said, I am here. Peace. Peace. And his first words to Joseph were, don't be afraid. The first words to the shepherds were, don't be afraid. Peace. Why? God's here. I got this. You're all right. In the middle of the night came the wings of God. In the darkest of night, the star of hope shone. So who did he come for? All of us. The Jews thought he'd come just for them. And I get that. I really do. Because they'd read their own scriptures. They'd, they'd been faithful. I guess they'd been unfaithful too. But nobody had been more faithful than the Jews. But Jesus looked at them and said, I have, my father has sheep in other pastures. The Jews argued about what that meant. But now looking back at it, we know exactly what he meant. He has us too. 
He has the people in the far northern climes. He has the people in the heat of Africa. He has the people stranded on the big Australian continent. He's got them all. Those are his people too. I want to tell you a story. A member of the Irish royal family back in the 400s, all the way up to the 800s, that line was the Irish royal family. And this young man was in, in, in line to become the high king, the Ardri of Ireland, very soon. But instead, he and those who wanted to go with him built boats, coracles they're called, skin boats with uh, stretched wood in between. And they got into them and they sailed east from Ireland to the islands off the west of Scotland. At that time, Scotland was known as Alupa. Uh, it became known as Scotland because the Irish went there. The Scots were an Irish tribe. They went there to the west to an island, a windswept, lonely island I have been to and I'd recommend that you go called Iona. And there they set up camp with the idea of we will take the story of Jesus to the Druids and the pagans of Alupa of Scotland today. They went across, Columba was his name. They went across and told the stories to the powerful Druid and Pictish priest. And they wrote that after they told the story of Jesus and his birth and called him God with us, that the Druids and the Pictish priest dropped their staffs, fell to their knees, wept, and sang songs of praise. That is not what the Irish monks were expecting. And they looked at them and they said, why, why are you responding? We thought you would be angry or fight us or debate us. And the response they got back was, we have heard he is coming. We have been waiting for you. To this day, nobody knows where the story, how the story got there. But the story was also in India. When the missionaries got there, people heard, we've been waiting for you. It was in Africa. People heard the story. How they knew the story, I don't know. I, I won't confess to, to even have an idea there. What I do know is that the Picts and the Druids dropped their religion so quickly they left no written record and we can't reconstruct their language or their religion today. If you see anybody dressed as a Druid, it's because they figured that's what a Druid looks like. They're making it up because it was abandoned and Christianity was accepted. They converted immediately because they found out that God came near and that changed everything. Even in the darkest of night, the light had come. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31, and then 38 and 39. I'm going to step away so that Mark can bring the band back up. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Look at him working through history. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's you. 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is with us, who can be against us? Amen, church? Let's stand then and read this together. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My life's goal is to not let the Druids be better believers than I am. To not let the pagans believe faster and with more joy than I do. Do not let the whispers of the devil or the shouts of the world drown out the angel's song in our heart. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Jesus, Jesus has come. The Messiah is here. God with us. Amen, church.